Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In this new moon episode, I'll be discussing open relationships. We'll be speaking to Sam from Shrimp Teeth, an expert in polyamory and ethical non-monogamy. Then I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy by Rachel Krantz. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for open relationships. But first, let's talk about my own view on polyamory. I certainly wouldn't describe myself as polyamorous. In fact, it would be quite a deal breaker for me right now as I'm in my singledom, enjoying my single life and dating. If someone I met that I liked told me they were polyamorous or into open relationships, for me, it would be a massive deal breaker. Despite that, when I'm looking through different types of documentaries or programs or information about sexuality, I'm always attracted to content about polyamory. It really intrigues me. I think it's really taboo to admit to your partner that you are attracted to other people. How do people deal with it? I do wonder how people manage jealousy and not just that. What about time? Time is really limited. It must be so difficult to manage your, your primary partner, your job, your friends and more partners as well. I find the topic absolutely fascinating. And recently I was on, I actually did a review of the courses on a website called beducated.com. And it's really cool because you get a subscription and you can access all of the courses. It's kind of like a Udemy for erotic content. And thanks to the fact that it was a subscription and not just buying courses individually, I was able to indulge in lots of courses about topics that I would never consider in my real life because I am a bit of a voyeur. I like to see what other people are doing. It's very, very interesting. And I'm also, I've, I've also watched a lot of documentaries about polyamory. And sometimes I've seen that, you know, um, I've seen some of the couples I've seen in these, in these documentaries haven't convinced me entirely. It seems to be, um, I don't know. It seems to be that one of, one of them is more into it than the other. Obviously, this is just a massive, massive generalization, but there must be working for some people because I don't think monogamy is completely perfect by any means. I think all relationship models have their struggles and their advantages and disadvantages. But for me right now, I just want to find one person who's kind of into me. And monogamy is not something that I would demand of someone. I don't think we should. Um, we have the right really to 
tell someone else or demand what, what they do with their life. I think it should be something that is offered freely and it's, that's, that it should be this thing that the other person wants as well. That's the only way I can see it. It wouldn't be in me, in my nature to kind of tell someone, you're never going to, you're not allowed to sleep with anyone else <laughs> or something like that. Or if they told that to me, I would be like, what? You can't tell me what to do. But for me, I would, I would describe my, my relationship style as naturally monogamous commitment phobe. And that sounds like a bit of a contradiction in itself, really, but that's, I found that that's worked for me. For example, I tend to kind of gravitate towards someone, they gravitate towards me. And being with them is just much more rewarding on a kind of one to one monogamous kind of level. I don't really need anyone else. I just feel that I've been single for so long, had many, many single episodes, been dating. And it's kind of nice to uh, to have that cocoon that can be created sometimes in monogamy. I'm not, I'm not sure if that can be created as well if there are other people coming into your intimate world, but I think it's different for every single couple. My only dalliance with polyamory was a few years ago when I was seeing a guy who told me that he had an open relationship. And it was kind of strange because he had a kind of long distance relationship. So it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. So when he was in my city, he wasn't with his partner kind of thing. And we did work together. So I did have the opportunity to spend a lot of time with him. And at first I was thinking, no, definitely not. But, you know, <laughs> over time he kind of seduced me and his arrangement was kind of like a, kind of like a hall pass or a don't ask, don't tell type of scenario. And that's how he justified it to himself, that he wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't being unfaithful or anything like that because he already had this agreement with his partner. And that for me was kind of okay at the beginning because I didn't really think of him in an emotional way. Um, it was just, um, you know, kind of colleague, a bit, a bit of fun. But then gradually things kind of got out of control on an emotional level. And I felt that I just felt, um, I don't know how to describe it, but I felt that I felt very out of control of my feelings. And I didn't really like that situation. And I didn't like the fact that he would just pop into my city and then expect me to be available. And, um, cause I mean, I was even faithful to him when he was actually with someone else the whole time. And it just feel, it just felt like I felt as, as also, also because I couldn't, contact him at the weekends because I knew he'd be with his primary partner who knew nothing about me because it was a don't ask, don't tell. And it just felt the same as if I was the side chick, really. And and I think if you have a don't ask, don't tell scenario, you don't know if the other person is with one person or if they're with 10. I mean, potentially it could be worse if it's one person because it could it could mean that there is a, a, an emotional bond as well. But for me, I just felt that it was... Um, something I definitely had to kind of stop from happening. And I remember one day I actually just opened up my computer and opened up Facebook and had a notification on the homepage saying that this person had just gotten married. And I was like, what? I mean, from what he was talking about, he didn't seem to be very in love with his with his partner. And suddenly he's getting married. So, so when I saw that happen, I decided, and he was, he's, he's kind of like, with me the week before, and I had no idea that this was going on. 
And when I saw this um, happening, I did take a step back. But also I do think that that time of my life, I did, I was kind of attracting people, men who were emotionally unavailable. And I think that was something subconscious on my heart, my behalf. It was kind of something, I just felt that it was almost emotionally safe for a avoidant attachment person like myself. Cause I, I felt that it wasn't going to ever get complicated emotionally or it was kind of like a safety barrier because I knew it wasn't, it could only go so far kind of thing. So I've never really had a relationship that, um, where I have discussed future plans with someone. I've, I've always, I've always thought that was very risky. I'm not sure if that will ever change, but I do hope, um, <laughs> I do hope I can, uh, change. But I mean, I do think now after that situation, I distanced myself from him. And as I changed and my self-love and self-esteem grew, it would be unthinkable for me to kind of find myself in the same situation again. And he does still contact me to try and meet up, even though many years have gone by, but I always just ignore the messages. I I suppose a part of me is flattered that he he still remembers me (laughs) or that he can't forget me, but I have no desire whatsoever to to stay friends with, with that person. And he wasn't the only one. I was also attracting other people in my life who were I found out that they were married. They hadn't told me, but when I look back, all of the signs were there. For example, they never invited me to their place. They only messaged me on certain times, never at the weekend because they were with the real partner then and all of that. And I just think it's all very complicated, these situations. And I think if you're going to do an open relationship, then I think the best thing is to be honest about it, especially you got to think about health and safety and contraception, safe sex and all of that. And also the safety on an emotional level. I think that is really, really, really important. But anyway, let's find out about polyamory with an expert in that. And also, I just don't want to make it sound like I'm against it because I do have friends who've been married for a long time and they found their life partner, but they do enjoy experimenting on the side and they would not risk their main their life that they have um, built with their with their real partner. And I can kind of understand that because I just haven't been in that situation myself where I've been with someone for 10, 20, 15 years, whatever. And then I can imagine that you would want to find the spark again. Um, is it possible to maintain with the same person? Well, I think it's it, it, it can be very, very, very difficult. But relationships do evolve over time. And after, you know, the honeymoon, there are other other things that are equally beautiful like in, in relationships, such as building home together and just having someone by your side. But some people are passion junkies and I think I'm a passion junkie. I think that would be quite difficult for me, but never say never. I do have hope that um, one day I will find someone that I will um, overcome my challenges with attachment and um I would like, I would pr- prefer a monogamous relationship, but I wouldn't want to feel that I was sacrificing anything. It would have to be something that was giving me so much that uh, it would be better than my life right now. But my life right now is pretty good. Anyway, let's speak to our interviewee today, who is an expert in these topics. Now it's time for this episode's interview. I'm going to be speaking to Sam from Shrimp Teeth an expert in polyamory and ethical non-monogamy. 
Sam, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for taking part. And I've seen that you have a very interesting website called Shrimp Tea, and that's the name of your social. Can you tell me the name, the story behind the name, and uh, what does it mean and how you chose it? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be connecting with you again. Um, yes, so Shrimp Teeth. Everyone thinks it's a euphemism for vulvas and it's sort of become like this inside joke. But originally it came way back in the day when I was in graphic design school. I had to make a fake website for a class and I pretty much created this website for like a shrimp orthodontist where you could book like appointments to bring in your pet shrimp to get their teeth cleaned it was just like a complete goofy thing like the point was just to learn how to make a website um not obviously like a branding thing and I don't know where that idea came from but anyways I had the domain shrimpteeth.com and when I started my company I just kept it because I owned it already and everything was set up um, so I just, yeah, have <laughs> always had that name, even if it doesn't really relate to sex education, but now people on social media know me pretty much exclusively as shrimp teeth. So it doesn't seem like I can change it anymore. <laughs> Great. So you've seen many interesting things on your website. You describe your services as queer, polyamorous and kinky education. And what inspired you to create a space for this type of education? Yeah. So pretty much what happened was that I started Shrimp Teeth, the Instagram account three years ago when I was first discovering my queerness and coming out of the closet. Um, I'd come out when I was 18-ish and then went straight back into the closet. Um, and as I was How can you come out and then go back in? Explain that. That sounds interesting. I've never heard that before. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting because as I've talked to other people who identify as bisexual, it's actually a pretty common um, experience of, you know, coming out, testing your sexuality and not being super confident in your queerness at that point. And for me, a lot of that had to do with my family relationships where they just sort of diminished it. I got a lot of the comments of like, you don't look like a real lesbian because I was, you know, very femme presenting at the time. And like, lesbians can only look this certain way. Bisexuality is not a real thing, which obviously we know that none of those things are true. But as a 18 year old, I definitely internalized a lot of that. So just was like, oh, well, I must be wrong about this. Um, and not having the like, I don't know how to say this, like the self-esteem to really validate my queerness. So I just went right back into my heterosexual relationship. And it was only years later that I got to a point where me and my partner were like, well, we have a platonic relationship. I've been feeling bisexual and probably more lesbian for years. So why am I hiding this? And so as I was doing all of that processing, I'm an artist, so I was drawing quite a lot about it and started posting these reflections to Instagram just as a way to like dump and just help me move through that big transition. Um, and obviously what my husband at the time and I did was open up our relationship too so that I would be able to date um, other women since him and I were no longer having that romantic and sexual relationship. So that's where all the polyamory sort of intersected with the queerness and that's how I ended up um, doing this kind of education. 
So it's kind of like a healing process for yourself, I guess. And you wanted to share it with other people going through similar experiences. Would that be correct? And absolutely. And it was one of those situations where, you know, I started off, I mean, I was working in social media at the time, um, but started off this page with something that felt like a very private, personal journey. And then all of a sudden that account exploded. And, you know, before I knew it, I was over 50,000 followers and recognizing like, wow, there are so many other people who are coming from very similar places, like identifying as queer, bisexual, but in straight assumed relationships um, and trying out polyamory or ethical non-monogamy as a way to validate that queerness. And there wasn't a whole lot of people at the time talking about that. Uh, So that's sort of, I I think people assumed I was an expert, but I wasn't at all. And it's only now through all this research and like really thinking about it that I feel like I have a little bit more to say and more, um, I don't know, I guess like better frameworks than when I originally started. Definitely having the confidence to share it because some people obviously consider this to be all private, private matter. And I guess having the confidence to share it openly will inspire other people as well to open up. Absolutely. So um, through Shrimp Teeth, you offer peer support sessions that are one-to-one educational conversations. How did you get into this? Yeah, so right around the time where the Instagram was hitting that 50,000 followers, I was getting blasted with DMs. People, like I said, didn't necessarily have anywhere to go to um, and were just like telling me their life story. And it was one of those situations where I just left my advertising job um, where I was a consumer psychologist and I'd been doing a lot of peer support or not peer support, doing a lot of focus group uh, and research, talking to other people about what their decisions were when they were making like purchasing choices. (laughs) So I was asking them like, you know, do you like this toothpaste or do you like this toothpaste better? And so I started uh, through the request of people in DMs, like actually taking phone calls and we would go through different relationships, structures and models. And pretty much I used the same kind of expertise that I'd had moderating focus groups and applied that to sort of like this relationship um, education. So it was really about telling people like, well, here's what relationship anarchy looks like. Here's what hierarchical polyamory looks like. Here's what deliberate monogamy looks like based on, you know, your lifestyle and what you want, which of these models seems to be correct for you and how can you tailor it to actually fit your needs. Um, So that's how the peer support pretty much started. And it's become a lot more fluid and includes a lot of different experiences. It's kind of blown up (laughs) from there. Now we talk to people about all sorts of different um, topics, including queerness, sexuality, etc. So what are the most common topics that that you are discussing with your with your would you call them clients or the people who contact you what how would you what's the most common subject yeah so it, it it does vary quite a bit but I would say the majority falls within polyamory and like I mentioned for a lot of people at least like my core group of folks um are at that intersection of queer, kinky, and polyam or non-monogamous. And none of those things can be necessarily like teased apart. So usually within these peer support calls, we touch on all facets of <laughs> yeah, their 
sexual relational life. Great. Um, so you mentioned um, how the phrase coming out um, places the burden on queer folks. Talk to me about this. Do you think it's always necessary for people to come out? I mean, for example, I know friends who are in the closet, but they don't have, let's say, a serious relationship. So they're not kind of fooling anyone. It's just that they don't feel comfortable coming out to, let's say, work colleagues or family. What do you think about that? What do you think about coming out? Do you think there's a lot of pressure on people to come out? Yeah, so that's a very nuanced question because obviously there's not like one right answer for everybody. I always play safety as the number one priority. Like in any kind of consider in any kind of situation, you have to consider whether or not coming out is going to put you in physical, emotional danger. Um, like, unfortunately, we know the world is not queer friendly, queer accepting, and depending on your demographic, depending on your life experiences and community, that safety issue can be very different right? There's people who are very privileged. Like I live in Portland, Oregon, which is super queer friendly. I fly a queer flag out front um, and nobody has a problem with it for the most part, but that's obviously not the, the case. You know, I lived in like Kentucky for a bit and that would not have gone by in the same way. So when I think about coming out, it is definitely a personal choice. Nobody has to come out. They don't owe anybody that um, personal experience, especially if it's going to compromise their, their safety. And I think that's where the idea of letting people in sort of reframes whose burden it is. Um, because again, there's often like this pressure for queer folks to justify themselves, to uh, like open up potential wounds, to be vulnerable with other people when it comes to sharing this kind of information. Um, and my idea is that it should be, the burden should be on the people asking for that information, right? Like I only share my queerness with people who I know will not harm me and people who I know can be accepting um, or who could be accepting down the road. Um, yeah, so that's sort of that idea. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah I guess it's so, it's so varied. And also for some people who let's say who are very famous or in the public eye, there's some, obviously there can be some rumors about some people's sexuality and that person doesn't want to be, let's say, a role model for, for, for a sexuality. And then people kind of um, make lots of assumptions. And I think that can be hard as well. I mean, I think um, when people have a platform, I think there's sometimes too much pressure to try and kind of be a role model for whatever, and they just want to do their job or something. So I think it's sometimes, I think it's definitely a, a personal choice. The only, only problem is, is when people are living a lie, which is which happens a lot as well. You know, people who who choose a life of, let's say, you know, straight marriage or something and having kids, and there's a lot of that going on. Unfortunately, people who can't be honest with themselves. Do you encounter anyone like that who's living a lie or a double life? Sure. I mean, I would consider myself to have been one of those people. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily a lie. It was more of like a lack of um, self-knowledge, mostly in the sense that I did not trust that my queerness was valid enough to take up space, right? So I'd been in a relationship for a decade with a really lovely man. Um, and him and I sort of struggled for quite a few years to figure out what kind of relationship we had because I just 
never really reciprocated that sexual energy and wasn't able to communicate fully why, which is why part of, you know, my education comes in through kink too, is like, it was way easier for us to practice non-sexual intimacy than it was to practice, um, yeah, sexuality together. But through that experience, I often resorted or like defaulted, I guess, to the relationship and was like, well, if I'm in this straight assumed relationship, then my queerness can't take up room. Like I have to diminish myself in order to, you know, be this good wife (laughs) that is expected of me. Um, Plus I was working in a very like corporate environment where there were zero queer people that were out and, I would say would probably have, I know Colgate would (laughs) beg to differ, um, but they would have, you know, not given me the ability to get promotions and things like that if I had been publicly out. Um, So there are a lot of those ways that we like self-betray, that we internalize homophobia and that we end up stuck in a closet, whether we want to or not. It's not like quite as simple as I'm deliberately choosing to lie to other folks. Usually there's a lot of like cultural pressure that puts us back um yeah in like places where we don't feel like we're able to affirm ourselves does that make sense yeah definitely definitely so many perspectives I've never considered before um but also we're talking about polyamory I think it's a kind of really trendy topic at the moment I think people have lots of questions about it and personally it's it's not a, a relationship model that attracts me but I have a massive respect for the openness that polyamorous couples or throuples or more can actually share for example it's often very taboo to share for example your desire for someone outside a relationship you know that's a really taboo taboo subject and the only um, experience I've had with um, polyamory is that I was involved with a married man a few a few years ago who had a don't ask don't tell arrangement with his wife and um, I was actually, it just, it's just as bad as actually being with someone who's, you know, married and, and not open about that. Because I, I just actually did some research and I found that the don't ask, don't tell model of polyamory was actually kind of looked down upon in the community quite a lot. So I, was, I found that really intriguing. So I guess in his head, it was all fine. He was just, um, you know, justifying it in his own head that he wasn't doing anything wrong. But for me, I always felt that I couldn't let's say, send a message at the weekend because he'd be with his wife and his kids and all of that. So I felt like it was just like another married man kind of experience. So what other types of um, polyamory are there out there? Because there must be more than, uh, I know, uh, uh, throuples, for example, is that quite common? Is that having a a three-person relationship? Yeah. So the way that I like to explain the don't ask, don't tell, because I think it does get a really bad reputation, um, I like to think of it kind of as a spectrum of disclosure, right? Mm-hmm. Having don't ask, don't tell on one end where there is very, very little disclosure about other partners. And then on the complete other end of that spectrum is like kitchen table polyamory, where everybody knows about each other and has relationships to one another, whether they are romantic and sexual or just platonic. 
Um, and I think that, you know, I started off my polyamory in a don't ask, don't tell, because my partner and I were long distance. We had an understanding that we were seeing other people. It just didn't make sense for us to necessarily get into who specifically we were seeing since we were so far apart. There was never going to be a situation where we were crossing paths with our metamors or anything of that nature. Um, so in those situations, don't ask, don't tell was used to sort of like reduce the amount of anxiety that we had about potential other partners that were interfering in our life. There is, however, the situation where you're talking about where don't ask, don't tell is essentially just a stand in for cheating, <laughs> where people are using that as a way to sort of hide or divert, deflect responsibility from their main partner, in which case, obviously, it's very damaging. Um, but like I said, there is kind of a trade off in both of those types of like disclosure methods. Cause like on one hand, if you're doing kitchen table polyamory, it can be really wonderful if everybody gets along super well. If people don't get along very well, then it can <laughs> lead to a ton of problems. And like we said, with the don't ask, don't tell, some people are just more comfortable not knowing the specific details. So I think it really is, um, dependent on different people and what their preferences are. And a lot of the education that I do, like I mentioned earlier, is figuring out what those specific preferences are so that people don't feel like there's one model that is right and one model that is wrong. I think that's what compulsory monogamy has taught us a lot of the time is that you can only be monogamous. That's the only valid way of being in relationship. And so we're just trying to broaden it up and give people the ability to understand how to practice those relationships ethically, regardless of the model. Because like I said, there is a more ethical way of doing don't ask, don't tell, <laughs> but yeah. you have to set that as your goal. You can't just, you know, accept it and then never give it any more thought. Um, yeah. Does that I make sense? The worrying part of that is would be, you don't know if they've been with one person or 10. <laughs> You know, I think, and also you have to think about safety as well, because you're not really having those conversations about safe sex, et cetera, if, if there is this huge mystery around what the other yeah. person is doing. And, and, Absolutely. Yeah. and I think that's where the don't ask, don't tell, we have to understand what that actually entails. Like, we're saying we're not telling about the specific person, but there needs to be an understanding that there are other people and knowing who those other people are, what like safer sex practices are being used with all of those different people so that people are able to consent to those intimate relationships, right? So when I was like in that don't ask, don't tell with my partner, it was really clear for us that since we were seeing other people, we had to use barriers together um, because we weren't like fluid bonded together. Um, so those are conversations that need to happen regardless of what kind of structure you have, regardless of how much disclosure you have. Like there are still certain fundamentals that everybody needs to be in agreement with. And if you're not able to do that, then, you know, we just end up in polyfuckery where you're yeah. using the word polyamory as a way to justify cheating, which is not the same thing. Speaking of polyfuckery, I mean, do you think, do you find that some people are attracted to this lifestyle mainly for the sex or is it? Does the emotional part come after? I mean, have you seen any distinction between that? What do you think about, for example, the people who who come to you for, for coaching? Yeah, um, 
It's really varied. I think there tends to be this idea that like if you're practicing polyamory just for sex, um, or I guess ethical non-monogamy, because polyamory means many loves, so we're assuming there is some mm. kind of relationship. Um, but if you're practicing ethical non-monogamy just for sex, somehow you have like not the right reasons. And I think, again, putting these structures in a hierarchy is kind of useless because people have so many different motivations for connecting with others and wanting lots of sexual partners is super valid, especially if you're doing it conscientiously and you're able to ethically inform everyone, like, this is my reason, this is my goal, and you're treating everyone with respect. I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with it. Um, I would not say that that's the main type of people that come to me. Usually the folks who I speak to are more invested in practicing polyamory where love or relationships is sort of the main focus. Um, I would say the bulk of people who I talk to have established primary partners and are trying to open up the relationship. Um, yeah, so a lot of their questions are around like, how can I do this in a way that's not going to hurt, harm and dissolve my existing partnership, but also is respectful of the other people who are going to be involved in, you know, like this group dynamic. Um, yeah, so I would say, contrary to a lot of the like <laughs> bad press that people are getting, Folks that at least I have interacted with are incredibly like conscientious and really want to learn how to maintain multiple relationships. Like their goal isn't just to hop from one monogamous relationship, open up and just have sex with everybody in the world without considering anyone's feelings. Like it really is about preserving the integrity of their existing relationship while also sustaining multiple loving partnerships. Um, so what kind of advice would you give to a couple who who want to open up? Does your advice vary, for example, if a couple have been together for a long, long, long time and they're kind of maybe bored compared to a couple who are a new couple who haven't <laughs> been together for very long? Do you think there's a big difference between that, between those situations? <laughs> yes and no. Um, a lot of the challenges that I find is around communication and setting clear boundaries. Um, we use a framework at, at Shrimp Teeth with the other mentor um, called Bayes, right? So it's our boundaries, our agreements, our expectations and support. So once you have those sort of figured out, it becomes way easier to communicate to your partner. Like, yes, you can expect this of me. Yes, I can expect this of you. Yes, I can expect this of our other partners. And this is how we want to function together. So a lot of folks come to me and have never had a conversation around their boundaries because compulsory monogamy essentially gives you a template, right? It's like, here is what you expect of your partner. Here's how you have to behave. With polyamory or ethical non-monogamy, you kind of have to go back in and tweak those boundaries, tweak those expectations and decide together and individually how you wanna structure that. So it is a lot of work for folks who've never had to do this work together. And I find that it's a little bit harder for long-term relationships because you've defaulted to a lot of expectations um, without ever necessarily like taking a good hard look at whether or not they work for you. So I'll give you an example. One of the things that my my ex-partner and I had to do was separate our bedrooms, right? We decided we want an opt-in model of 
um, ethical non-monogamy rather than an opt-out model. Again, these are two ways of structuring your relationships that are both super valid. But that means that we have separate bedrooms and we decide if we want to sleep together rather than having a shared bedroom and then deciding if we want to sleep apart. And that often just like breaks people's expectations because compulsory monogamy doesn't give you that as an option to begin with. So a lot of folks don't even know to ask the question, like, do I prefer to have my own space or do I prefer to have a shared space? Because the default assumption is that you have to have a shared space. Um, so yeah, it is a lot of that kind of advice or not even advice, but more just like asking the questions for people to judge whether or not one option works better for them than another option. Well, I think separate bedrooms is absolutely fantastic. And I actually lived with a guy many years ago and he used to get up for work at half past five, which I, I didn't. So it was just made sense to actually have separate bedrooms and I'm quite messy. He was very tidy. So, and then at the weekend we had this kind of like opt-in situation where I was kind of going to his cleaner room. <laughs> we, we would stay together, but it was fantastic. We'd have our snuggles in the evening and then each one would go to, um, their respective bedrooms and when people came around to our house they thought wow this is so cool I wish we could live like this but I, I'd recommend it for everyone also people sleep better and it just makes it more it's more I keep it keeps a spark alive I think a lot more <laughs> even if you're not polyamorous I think it's a fantastic uh, piece of advice for any couple really another perception that maybe people have about polyamory from the outside is that they might be able to deal with jealousy much better, or they might be even immune to jealousy. Obviously, that's not that can't be true. Or how do people deal with this? Because it must be, I guess some people are doing it separately from their partners, whereas others will be doing it right in front of their face. And some people might be really turned on by that. And for others, it could be almost traumatic. So, I mean, how do you have any tips about jealousy? Or have you encountered that this is a, a topic that people ask for ask for advice about yeah so that is one of the big topics i would say aside from our bays like the boundaries agreement expectation stuff it really is that other question um couples who are looking to open their relationship are really really scared of jealousy compulsory monogamy has given us a ton of shame around jealousy we kind of have this idea that like if we're experiencing jealousy it's our partner's fault for causing us to be jealous and therefore they have to alter their behavior. Um, when you come into polyamory, I mean, the instances of jealousy just shoot right up, right? Whether or not you're the chillest person in the world, there is going to be some issue that's going to, you know, poke at you and make you feel those spicy emotions. We all have insecurities. And I think that this framework, especially, it's not necessarily because you're having multiple relationships. It's because it's so different, I would say, from what our culture teaches us is like, a safe, secure relationship, you really have to rewire your brain towards that orientation. And that process is really emotionally difficult. Um, so when we talk about jealousy, you know, we're talking about a whole spectrum of spicy emotions is what I call them, like sadness, anger, fear, all of that baggage. Um, and what I tell people is like, first of all, we need to stop 
being ashamed of jealousy, it's fine, right? Jealousy, their emotions, they're temporary and they're as valid as they are temporary, right? Like your feeling of anger is not going to last forever. It's not going to kill you. You're not going to actually be harmed by it. You just need to be mindful of how it passes through you and what you're holding on to versus what you're able to release. And I think a lot of folks um, are so scared of being jealous that they don't realize like the more you embrace it, allow it to wash through you and you're able to let it go, the easier that process gets. So a lot of the work that I do with uh, people over peer support is give them the tools to create a jealousy ritual with themselves. So finding a couple of things, activities that they know they can go to time and time and time again. And it helps with rehearsal. Like you, you're essentially teaching your body. When I feel spicy, I, in my case, go wash my hands, take some deep breath, look at myself in the mirror, calm down. I do an art project really angrily and then I burn it and let it go you know these are the things that I've practiced and so when those emotions sort of like take over me I still feel relatively in control in the sense that I know that if I follow my ritual I'm not just gonna blow up at my partner and cause a huge like issue that doesn't need to happen And at the end of my ritual, if there's still something that my partner is doing that's causing me jealousy or that, you know, there's an insecurity that I need validated, then I can have that conversation. But it's so much easier to address like the fundamental hurt or insecurity once I'm calm. Like if I'm trying to address that in a place of like really heated anger or like huge fear, huge insecurities, I'm not actually able to communicate what I want clearly. And so it is kind of that process of giving yourself the permission to take care of your emotions and really do like tangible self-care before you um, yeah, have conversations with your partners. So you think it's a good thing to actually talk to them about the jealousy then? Do you think that's recommended? Yeah, and to not be afraid. I think people think that like polyamory is easier if you don't experience jealousy. And my reframing of that is like polyamory is easier if you're able to talk to your partners about what is making you jealous, even if it seems trivial, even if it seems uncool, like it doesn't really matter. It's not you're not getting graded on this, right? And the more that you let your partner into that experience, the more they understand you and the more they're actually able to provide support. I think one thing I could imagine could be quite difficult is if your partner suddenly starts spending more time with that other person or maybe being more like available for that other person. That could be something that's quite difficult to deal with. And maybe there's the novelty value of the new person in the relationship. Do you think, is that something that's common? Yeah, so there's a term for that. It's oh, really? NRE. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> so what? Sorry? It's called NRE. It stands for new relationship energy. Oh. And it is that like intoxicating feeling when you first meet somebody. Um, there's also the contrasting old relationship energy. Um, and again, there's not a better or worse. Both of both have their good and bad sides. Um, but yeah, it does happen. Like I have been talking about my husband as my ex-husband, we got divorced. Um, and you know, like both him and I deprioritized our relationship as our relationship with 
our other partners started to increase, right? So we went from living together to uh, moving away and moving in with our respective partners. And now we have a relationship that looks vastly different than it did, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and that is the risk, you know, but it, it works like any relationship, monogamous relationships and uh, friendships and all of us sort of restructure and go through periods where we realize like this person who I deeply love just is not the right fit for me at this point in my life anymore. Um, and it is scary. And I think a lot of folks are like, well, you're inviting that kind of pain into your life by allowing other partners to exist. Like it's better if we, um, you know, don't have other partners than the temptation to leave won't exist. And we kind of know that that's not true. Oh, definitely not. Because um, <laughs> I mean, so many, I don't know what the statistics are, but I mean, most people are unfaithful at some point, not, especially because we're living so long now. I mean, you yeah. know, until 85 or something, it's quite difficult, you know, most society to actually be with the same person for 50, 60 years, you know, and then there's all those double lifers and, and lies and all of those things, which I think is not ideal. And I think the problem is that people, you know, judge a relationship on how long it's lasted, which shouldn't be the case. It should be how happy you were, you know, so, yeah. so I think that's a real problem. Yeah. And I think what's really nice that we sort of don't talk about quite as much um, is like polyamorous breakups are different than monogamous breakups. Oh, really? That's how, how so? <laughs> In the sense that we have a little bit more of an acceptance around like restructuring relationships. So that's what I did with my ex-husband. Him and I agreed like our relationship as it stands no longer fits our lifestyles. We're both going to move in with our respective partners. And we understood also like right now we're in heated emotional places as a result of this. So we need deliberate time off. So we went ahead and took that space at, with the intention that after a year of not talking, we would be able to come back and start nurturing a new form of friendship that would be able to be more sustainable and more happy I think in monogamous relationships we often have this like don't stay friends with your exes <laughs> kind of mentality or like once you're done you're done forever and I find that people who are non-monogamous tend to have more of an acceptance of you know being friends with their exes and sort of being able to see relationships not as like singular but understanding that they could transform into something else in the future and again maybe this is more a reflection of like queer relationships than it is of non-monogamous relationships but I find that those conversations are a lot more acceptable I guess. It sounds a lot more civilized because I mean most people who, who let's say get divorced they can be very traumatic a divorce you know you think you you've signed up for forever with someone and then things happen and then uh, and there can be a lot of resentment as well and uh, yeah lots of lots of negative energy let's talk about um gender non-conformity gender is such a massive topic right now i always um, i've always been attracted to just gender as a topic anyway i wanted to study women's studies when i was uh, going to university and i specialized in in feminism and every time i see something about gender i'm always clicking on it but it's, it's just changed so much over the last maybe five years it's a very hot topic at the moment so what is gender non-conformity yeah and again 
hard to give like a singular answer, but for me, I'll speak from my experience first. Um, I'm somebody who identifies as gender fluid, meaning it's hard for me to see myself as a singular gender, um, both in presentation, which is how I express myself to the world, but also internally, I think there is a really big flux in the way that I see and experience myself. There are days where I feel like femininity is a lot more accessible to me. It feels more authentic. Wearing dresses feels attractive, feels like it's validating my full experience. And there's days where that just feels like truly uh, I don't know how to say this, like repulsive in a way, um, and where like masculinity fits a lot better. And so being able to understand that, again, like we've created such a strict binary of male, female, woman, man, um, and that those things are not exclusive and those boundaries are not quite as solid as we have been told they are um, and that lots of people like myself kind of fall somewhere in between right um, and I think it goes you know hand in hand with our understanding of sexuality I think in the past we really had this rigid understanding of like you are either a hundred percent straight or you're a hundred percent gay and I think now we're starting to get this I understanding of like queerness as in you don't necessarily need to restrict yourself and fit into a perfect box. Um, setting up all these standards really gives us too much to work towards. Like we're trying to really limit our experiences to a set of rules that somebody else gave us. Um, and I think that the understanding now or like why non-binary identities, why gender non-conforming identities are becoming like a quote-unquote hot topic is because we're giving each other permission to not hold so rigidly to these social constructs that we've yeah been told are the right way of moving through the world. Um, and I think it's super freeing and definitely necessary. Definitely necessary. I mean, we've come a long way in the last 50 years. I mean, there's no way we could have this conversation today. Our no. grandmothers could not have this conversation today, that's for sure. Um, so more about gender. I think um, for me, I think I'm always looking at this topic because I just think I'm, I'm not really sure what the solutions are to the problems at the moment. Uh, or problems, I don't know, maybe that's not the right word, but it just seems to be a lot of, um, a lot of, Confu not confusion, but a lot of different different perspectives out there, and um, I guess people don't really know what the solution is to make everyone to make everyone happy. I mean, for example, yeah. um, in the sex toy industry, which is my industry, maybe five ten years ago, it was all these toys are made by women for women, and suddenly now we when we can't say women, it's like vulva havers, and there's a lot of things about. Um, language as well which is and I always feel like sometimes with this topic I don't really know what to say or how to approach it you know without offending anyone do you have do you offer anything like this to some of your the people who contact you yeah so like I told you most of the people who I talk to fall somewhere on the queer spectrum and that includes with their gender identity um I would say that the big difference I notice is like the discomfort around 
gender is what hinders a lot of folks. Like when you're trying so hard to say the right thing and use the right terms and not be offensive, you kind of miss the human element, which is the fact that people just desire to be seen and desire to be understood, right? And I think that the more that we, you know, like, moving to a model where we there's like a strict understanding of what it means to be non-binary we're just creating a different box and to me that's kind of <laughs> counterproductive right the more that we give people the options to decide what works for them and i think this also fits into my relationship <laughs> ideology too the better off we are right people are able to decide what they want if they're given the choices and if they don't know what they want, they're at least able to decide whether or not they want to try something. Um, so I find that a lot of these conversations are a little bit too, uh, like, rig mm. <laughs> they're rigid? A little rigid, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, that may be the right word. In the sense that, you know, we're saying like, oh, you have to, you know, dress like this or like this. And it's like, no, you don't like wear what you want and you get to decide and you get to tell people what kind of like Christmas gifts you want if they're going to give you clothes. Right. Um, and I think it really is like about approaching people with curiosity and letting them fill you in <laughs> on um, what they want. And it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about coming out versus letting in like the mo the more you're curious about people, the more you give them the opportunity to see them as a human being that's not the same as every other type of human being, the more authentic you're going to be able to have um, an experience with them. Does connection, definitely, yeah, yeah. I think seeing people as human is probably the, the most, because right. at the end of the day, we all have similar concerns, you know, no matter what gender you are or yeah. what relationship you follow. Everyone wants good health care, good schooling, and, you know, to be warm, have That's a nice house. <laughs> well, most people anyway. Yeah. It's not to be, like, reductive and say, like, oh, gender doesn't matter, because it definitely does matter. It impacts how we live in the world, but it's more about saying, like, these solutions that we're trying to find that are so simple are always going to miss the mark, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of asking, instead of setting up more and more check boxes, um, I think it is about leaving like blank lines and like fill in your own definition rather than telling people that they only have one or two or three options to choose from. Yeah, for me in my life, I've always been, I always considered myself to be a woman with balls. I mean, I really, I, I kind of grew up with, um, I didn't really grow up with strong male influences. So I never thought I was going to be, you know, a housewife or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I always kind of, I've always been a very independent woman and very kind of like created my own life. And I do play the fem female card big time because I mean, I don't think many men could be a sex toy reviewer in the way I am, <laughs> you know, or have the same, um, same status or, or something. So I've been very, very masculine in, in terms of like, logical brain and um, active and all of that. And recently I went to see a psychic healer who told me to kind of embrace the feminine a bit more. So right now I'm actually kind of doing some work with them, um, connecting with the divine feminine. It kind of feels nice to kind of just be and not do and just be a bit more just passive <laughs> in the nicest possible way without losing my power. But it just feels like um, it's kind of a nice thing for me to do because I've not been like that at all for <laughs> I don't remember it being like this. I was always kind of like a big feminist and and just kind of look almost looking down on the kind of just, um, traditional gender roles of you know getting married and and um, 
not not working and just not having to work. I remember when I was actually studying for my exams, um, I was in a panic just trying to remember all of this data. And one of my friends said to me, don't worry, if we fail, we can just get married. <laughs> I just thought that was the worst advice ever. But it is, it is unfortunately what a lot of women do. It's just like they work for a bit and then it's like, hmm, let's have some kids now and not work. <laughs> but you do pay a price, I think, if you... If, if you do that so I've kind of I've gone really against that and I'm just kind of like hmm. I'm not going to become a housewife or anything like that but I just I'm, I'm kind of enjoying kind of just um, being a bit more passive in life and uh, wearing wearing dresses a bit more <laughs> definitely very good there's some short questions um do you have a phrase or a quotation or a philosophy that you live by or, or a, an, aff an affirmation that makes you think, yes, this is uh, gives me power or something you identify with? I've been using the phrase like pleasure first as a reminder, like if I follow my pleasure, then I know that I'm headed towards something that's going to be good for me and good for the world, right? I think this fits with like Adrienne Marie Brown's perspective a lot of like, when you feel good, you do good for the world. And I really do subscribe to that ideology. That sounds great. Pleasure first. What about a book? Have you got a book that's changed your life? Yeah, actually, I'm going to be doing an interview with Kimberly Dark today. So I have her book right on hand, but she just released a book called Damage Like Me. Um, and I think it's super interesting. It's about it says essays on love, harm and transformation, but it really does talk about like embracing more nuances and not trying to reduce really complex stories into simple digestible, uh, you know, like tropes. <laughs> um, so I think that's a really good one. Fantastic. I just read a book recently actually called um, Existential Kink. I really love it. It's a great title. Maybe you'll like it as well. Um, it's really about shadow work and embracing the dark side, which is something I never really considered before. So I've started to kind of like analyze the things I don't like about me, about my life, and trying to see that deep down they, they turn me on those things, you know, and trying to understand why. But it's yeah. kind of cool to kind of apply kink to personal development. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting uh, combination. I also saw on your... Instagrams now you are, you are, are you vegan yeah well so my oh, girlfriend wow. is vegan so I've been vegan for a year now because <laughs> I'm the one who does all the cooking she kind of wrote me into it um I say that but when I I think on my tinder bio it even said like make me vegan so <laughs> I'm not talking <laughs> about it <laughs> well, that's cool I'm actually vegan as well so that's a part of my podcast I'm interviewing a plant-based um doctors and influencers and stuff I just think it's it's hot. Do you think veganism can actually affect dating or, or um, relationships? I think so in the way that like we don't want to have kids. So we're pretty aligned and connected <laughs> in that way. You know, like we are vegan. So it just, you know, it's like the ideology that sort of helps make our relationship just a little bit more cohesive since we're on the same page and have the same values. There's actually a new vegan uh, dating app called Vegly, mm. which I'll is um, it. it's V E G G L Y, and recently they're doing lots of big campaigns now to just get out there a bit more, and they've got some very funny um, tips and uh, facts about vegan dating on um, on Instagram. So check that out because I really need to get loads of followers yeah. involved to actually make it successful. And uh, I think it's I mean I'm not really into um, 
dating apps. I like to meet people in person, but I have um, my own group here in Barcelona called the um, Barcelona Vegan Community. So actually we have vegan events every week. But I'm definitely open to a vegan dating app because then suddenly you've got something to talk about and food is just a great way to to connect with people, I think. People love to cook, right? It's really yeah. great. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think, uh, how, so how can people find you? Um, shrimpteeth.com. I am launching a podcast <laughs> that you are going to be featured on. Um, so that will be available shortly also. But yeah, my website is definitely the best way to find me. You can also find me on Instagram and Patreon. It's Patreon slash shrimpteeth, which all of those are great ways to connect with us. <laughs> fantastic well thank you so much for being with me tonight on the orgasmic lifestyle podcast and it's been very educational i'm sure the other people who've been listening will have, have learned a lot as well so wow. thank you so much and thank you so much for having me and i'm sure we'll connect again soon the book i'm reading now is open an uncensored memoir of love liberation and non-monogamy by Rachel Krantz. I'm reading this book, well, I've actually finished it now, because the sex book club that I'm a part of, we read the same book, and then we meet every month or six weeks to discuss it. Someone else chose this book. And I know some members of this sex book club are kind of more open to the idea of open relationships and non-monogamy than I am. So I've got to confess that when I first heard about this choice, I wasn't totally like, I don't know, what's the word? I wasn't very enthusiastic about it. So I left it until the last minute, until just a week before our meeting to actually buy the book. But then as soon as I bought it, I was hooked. I mean, really, I do love memoirs. I love reading about people's lives. I love reading in first person. I really think that you can get inside that person's head and really understand what's going on, even though the story might be very different from your life or different from the things you wish to experience. And that was my experience or my um, feeling on this book. I just learned so much. Um, it was very, very raw. And, and it even says somewhere that it was a naked. They describe it as naked. Let me just read the blurb here. That's written by Dr. Christ Christopher Ryan, author of Sex at Dawn. In open, Rachel Krantz, invites us into her deepest privacy as she explores her body and soul, fears and ecstasies, desires and disappointments. This is a starkly naked story of a young woman's adventure of self-discovery, told with a striking lack of shame or apology. Highly recommended. Yeah, it's very incredible. It doesn't hide anything from the good, the bad and the quite ugly really it's just um it's just really interesting how this whole thing kind of comes into her life and it's gripping from the first pages so i'd highly recommend it if you are curious about this lifestyle i don't want to give too much away about the book but uh, one negative side of it or kind of like negative not negative on the book but a kind of like um negative as in not not happy is that the relationship has a lot of gaslighting in it the main relationship that is described in this book and it's interesting that I found interesting that even though Rachel Krantz has this kind of maybe negative experience with a negative person or I don't know how to say if that's diplomatic or not but even though she's going through gaslighting 
she still is interested in the lifestyle of polyamory at the end. So that's something I found to be quite interesting. It wasn't just that she fell in love with a guy and did whatever he wanted. It wasn't really like that at all. And she's also a writer. She describes her work as a journalist and a writer throughout it. And she's also vegan. So that, that also ticks my boxes. And it's interesting as a journalist, she gets to experience different things such as going to swingers resorts and that's kind of interesting. So I just find that um, there's all these different labels and it's interesting how different couples and different people live out their desired lifestyles. And for example, in the swinger world, it's just all about sex. There's no emotions. It's just about going to a party. You have your fun and then it's kind of over. Whereas polyamory can be anything. It can be emotional. It can be meeting and just snuggling without sex. It can be, It can be lots of different things and maybe not so... It's not so clear sometimes where these boundaries are. And I found it very interesting, this exploration of all these different lifestyles and everything that she is discovering in this book. It's um, Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating and um, it's totally gripping. It's very well, well written. And I didn't actually finish it before I actually had the sex book club meeting, but we discussed some of the things that were happening in the book such as there is a description of stealthing when a guy removes the condom without telling you so. Um, and that's quite un- uncomfortable to read. And we talked about things like that, about you know some of the things that we have gone through with different guys. And um, yeah, I mean, some of my friends who are dating um, have told me this happens Um, quite a bit really, which is quite worrying. It could happen to them. One of my friends said it happens a few times a year and I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe guys have the balls to do that. I think it's so important to to make sure you talk about these things beforehand and uh, that these guys know that it's not okay. Because I think sometimes people don't understand what is what is um, consented or not. I think sometimes we have sex with people and we're naked in a bed and we and that doesn't mean that everything is possible. You have to really discuss where the boundaries are, possibly when you are clothed, um, so that there's no confusion. And um, stealthing is something that happened to me the very first time I had sex. It's never happened since, thank God. Um, I've, I'm always very religious about condoms, even though religion and condoms don't usually mix. But for me, my very first time having sex, um, my first boyfriend removed the condom and then came in a second and I was suddenly very wet and I had to go to a morning to get the morning after pill. And it was such a massive, it was really, it was a huge violation thinking about it. I mean, I didn't want to, I just had to think about, you know, not getting pregnant at the time. So I didn't think about what kind of guy he was to do that. But now there's no way I would tolerate something like that. And also something else that kind of struck me in the book was when some women kind of start having or taking contraception because the guy doesn't like condoms. And I just think, wow, I feel so grateful that the guys that I have been with never complain about condoms. And I'm I'm just loving condoms so much. Even in in relationships, I use condoms. I don't really want to be using anything else, to be honest. I used the pill many years ago and I don't like the idea of playing with my hormones or anything like that. Um, I have a very regular period, so I I just kind of like embrace the natural cycles and all of that. But um, I feel grateful that I haven't had any guys saying, oh, I can't feel anything, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because I think sex is uh, really in the mind and more in the mind than in the genitals. And um, 
Yeah. So, and also one of my friends actually told me that she was, had to go on the pill and she wasn't too happy about it. And she said that her husband, um, didn't like condoms. And, and I was saying, yeah, but what about you? You don't want to go on the pill. You don't want to have all these hormones on you. Like, cause she told me she didn't want to, she didn't really, she wasn't really, you know, thrilled about the idea. And she said to me, well, in a relationship, you have to make compromises. And I was like, I was thinking, mm, why do you have to make the compromises? <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, I love condoms and I think there are some great ones. And I think if you can't, if you don't like condoms, there is, you can have a lot of fun trying different brands and seeing which one is the best one. But I think, um, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but I think getting the right fit is important. And I really recommend a brand called mysize.com that have different girths, different uh, measurements of condoms and just having the right fit can definitely make a difference or so I am told. Yeah. So that's a bit of a sidetrack there, but, um, fortunately in the, uh, in the meeting with my sex book club, uh, we didn't, we just discussed some ideas and they didn't give the end away. But even though the, the meeting was over, I still devoured the rest of the pages. I was just excited to find out what, what was going to happen to the writer, the main character and how, her relationship was going to end, which is kind of like, kind of knew that at the beginning and what happened after. So yes, yeah, so I found the most interesting thing for me or the most interesting thing was that she still was interested in the open relationship lifestyle, even though the guy she was with, the first one who introduced it to her was uh, a gaslighter. Yeah. So absolutely fascinating. And I really highly recommend this book just because it's just, it's like a, being a voyeur in a world that you may or may not be a part of or may not be want to be a part of, but it's very well written and entertaining. And it's true. So that is Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation and non-monogamy by Rachel Krantz. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy. I am comfortable with my current relationship identity. My relationship needs are important. I feel supported. I am loyal to my relationship. I respect my partner and their desire to explore new things. Our relationship is getting stronger every day. Our relationship is based on trust, respect, Honesty. I am comfortable with my current relationship identity. My relationship needs are important. I give my partner space to explore their sexuality with other people. I communicate my desires to my partner. I communicate my struggles to my partner and I feel supported. I respect 
and accept the person my partner is. Our relationship is based on trust, respect and honesty. I am comfortable with my current relationship identity. My relationship needs are important. I feel reassured and respected. I'm experiencing my desired relationship style. It's okay for me to have my needs met by someone who isn't my partner. Consent is important. Our relationship is based on trust, respect and honesty. I am comfortable with my current relationship identity. My relationship needs are important. My boundaries and my partner's boundaries are always respected. When I want to try something new, I can discuss it with my partner. I can discuss jealousy with my partner and feel reassured. Our communication is always open and honest. Our relationship is based on trust, respect and honesty. I am comfortable with my current relationship identity. My relationship needs are important. I am comfortable with my sexual identity. I enjoy discovering new things with my partner and other people. I trust my partner. We take sexual health seriously. Our relationship is based on trust, respect and honesty. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax. Thank you.